Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moser-Katz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie, who lives in British Columbia. Just made it back from the farmer's market this morning, beautiful heirloom tomatoes, thinking, wow, episode 22 of The Extra Environmentalist is coming out today, and I'm excited. Today, after that Hurricane Irene has blown through and taken all the clouds with it, it is a gorgeous day in North Carolina. There is not a cloud in the sky. Cool. How was surviving Hurricane Irene? I heard it was very wet. I saw a few chairs fall down, and it, it was scary, I'm not going to lie. They had to pick them back up, which which was a very arduous process. The cover on my scooter, which is uh, parked directly outside my apartment, ballooned up, and I was very, very afraid for a little while that it was going to blow away. But... Through some expert handling of the tarp, I was able to reposition it in a way that did not blow away. You've had a rough week there on the East Coast, Seth. You had an earthquake and a hurricane, and I was pretty sure that next time we recorded, you were going to be recording live from a FEMA camp. Yeah, it was it was scary. It was touch and go there for a little while. The earthquake, I'm up on the sixth floor of this building over the city of downtown Durham, and I was sitting on my computer editing away, and all of a sudden, everything starts shaking, and I'm like, ah, oh, the boiler's blown up again in the basement. But then I look around, and everyone's like, ah, oh, there's an earthquake, oh my god, and yeah, there was an earthquake, and it was pretty exciting. Yeah, everyone on the East Coast isn't really used to earthquakes, but on the West Coast, there are more earthquakes, though living here for a few years, I have yet to experience one, and everyone always talks about how Vancouver is on the verge of experiencing the big one, but we have yet to have the big one, so I'm just sitting around hoping that it doesn't happen while I live here. It was my first earthquake, and for any listeners out there who have never been through an earthquake, it's a little bit kind of like being on a ship, and you get a little the rocking motion of the ship and the ocean except you're on dry land and you're like oh my goodness I'm feeling seasick and I'm sitting in my chair on the deck and there's no water around which is a little bit disconcerting but interesting nonetheless so it's Um, like being on a boat but on land it's like being on a boat on land correct yeah Uh, Which is a little bit like how uh, our guest this episode feels, I'm sure, being a podcaster out of Portland, Oregon, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. He has the Titanic at the end of every one of his podcast episodes. We're speaking with Doug Lane today of the Diet Soap podcast and author of Pick Your Battle that was based on a lot of the ideas and concepts that he's built in the podcast over the last few years that he's been doing it. And unlike in most interviews where you have a conversation between two podcasters and another podcaster... 
we didn't just talk about podcasting. We talked about a wide range of topics and we didn't really get into podcasting except for the first few minutes. We did break down and talk about what it was like to be a podcaster, but only for the first few minutes. Well, when you, there's so few podcasters in the world and you meet another one who has, you know, been a been a pretty substantial influence on your own show. It kind of is nice to say, hey, how you doing? Tell me about your show for a little while. Exactly. So we couldn't avoid talking about podcasting entirely, but it is just for the first few minutes. So once we get past that, we talk a lot about the idea of work and the nature of work and how it's impacted his own creative process and development, some of the expectations that he's had in his career and how he's transferring those onto his own kids and some of the ideas around performance and integrating these ideas about the end of capitalism or at least the way that capitalism functions as we know it into society. And so a lot of really interesting topics on the show today, and we're really excited to jump into the conversation. And so, yes, we are very excited to get into that conversation. And for, for those of you who have been with us since the very beginning, uh, Doug Lane and another podcaster, KMO of the Serum Podcast, did appear back on episode number three of The uh, Environmentalist, for those of you keeping score. And uh, Doug Lane is actually our first repeat guest, is he not, Justin? He is our first repeat guest, so he is part of the Extra Environmentalist alumni community. Yes. And on that note, let's jump into the show. Doug, you're an author of fiction and podcaster of Radical Philosophy with two novels and many short stories. And the Diet Soap podcast is now over two years into Mm -hmm. your journey. And last year, you successfully funded a Kickstarter project to write a radical self-help guide, Pick Your Battle, Your Guide to Urban Foraging, Hollywood Movies, Late Capitalism, and the Communist Alternative. And we're here to talk about that book today. Um, But you also have the distinction of being our first repeat guest. So you're the first guest to make a reappearance on The Extra Environmentalist. Since you and KMO of the Sea Realm podcast had quite a debate all the way back in our episode number three. So right. we'll, we'll talk about Pick Your Battle in a minute, but um, let, let's start out by just following up from that conversation in episode three. What, what was the follow-up from that discussion with KMO? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm honored to be the, the first returning guest to the extra environmentalist and since it's not KMO I'm going to take that as a win. <laughs> so anyhow <laughs> Yeah, so the follow up with that was kind of interesting. We had some uh I immediately called KMO right after the conversation and we kind of agreed that we didn't want to be enemies or fight like that anymore. So I agreed basically what I would do was try to, you know, get my act together and not attack him so much online because that's how he perceived it. But then that turned around into me feeling like he was trying to dictate kind of how I talked about anything, like anytime he didn't like what I was saying. So we had a little bit of a skirmish again on Facebook about, and it was very silly. I mean, I started talking about how kittens were evil and things to make some, <laughs> I don't know, abstract point. So we kind of were cool for about a year, didn't really talk to each other very much. And then recently I've had him back on to Diet Soap. And the thing that I'm realizing is that I don't have to have complete, you know, discipline and ideological coherence in my uh, friendships or creative friendships. And so I'm very much still a friend of KMO's and I want to continue working with him and talking to him and having the podcast interact. And, you know, I think the problem is getting your personal ego involved in your kind of intellectual differences. And that's difficult to avoid. 
it is. It's it's sometimes unavoidable, especially when you're working with people who are passionate about their work. So I wanted to ask you a very important question. Do you like writing better or podcasting? Podcasting is easier than writing. So I like podcasting better. <laughs> but I do a little bit of writing for the podcasting. But yeah, podcasting is almost relaxing in comparison to writing because you have to hone in more, I think, when you're writing and you have to. Basically, with podcasting, if I get a smart person on my or an interesting person on or hopefully both on my show, I don't have to. It's very easy then. I just let them talk for 10 minutes at a time and then come in and edit it a little bit later. It's more like a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a number of reasons for me personally why I enjoy it a little bit more easily. The, the other thing is, as a podcaster, I'm not a careerist. You know, as a writer, I've been all my entire writing life wanting to make a living and be a somebody with writing. Um, but as a podcaster, I'm just kind of participating in a conversation. Maybe with a very strong point of view. But nonetheless, I don't feel like podcasting is developed to the point where you can be a careerist or be particularly anybody important as a podcast. That's true. Yeah, podcasting is a very new medium. Is that what you expected originally when you started the podcast? What were some of the motivations when you, you first started putting out Diet Soap? You know, I was at that job at Comcast and I was feeling that I was kind of at a dead end or that, you know, the whole culture seemed to be at a dead end. And I was very much inspired by KMO, who was taking that feeling of being of collapse and reaching out to people and finding the others. And, and so I definitely thought I was going to be doing some of that. But what I wasn't aware of was how just by talking to so many different people, my own limitations would become so obvious uh, after a while. And do you find that now you're, you're podcasting and you're having these conversations with unbelievably in, intelligent and well-accomplished people on a regular basis, how does that spill over into your daily life and daily conversations? Like if you go and chat with a neighbor, does it immediately turn to like, oh, here's this unbelievable philosophy that I just had a conversation with this guy at, at <laughs> University of Texas about? And then do they just zone out? or does that add an extra dimension? <laughs> kind of a fine line, right? One of the things about talking to a lot of bright people, accomplished people, one of the things you learn is that when it comes to day-to-day -day life, probably they're no better off than you are or no better at bridging that gap between everyday life and theory. I mean, if we could do that well, we wouldn't be in this problem, I, I think. Basically, kind of the, the rephrase the question, am I boring the shit out of the people in my life? Right. <laughs> not very often. Like. <laughs> but I, I try not to. How do you feel that podcasting and interviewing people has kind of shaped your career path? I mean, do you, has that waylaid into where you want to go in, in your work? Has that added yeah. to it? Has it augmented it? I would not have written Pick Your Battle if it hadn't been for starting up Diet Soap, if it hadn't been for listening to KMO's C-Realm podcast, if it hadn't been for that. I, I wouldn't have had the confidence or interest, maybe, in going into the nonfiction world. One of the key points that you wrote about in the book was your moment of Zen enlightenment in the call center. Maybe you could speak about that for, for a moment. The thing about that is that, yes, I, I did have one moment, but it was also kind of a cumulative uh, effect of working at Comcast. So in that section, Losing My Head, Capital is Zen, I, I start out, I think, describing a moment where I, I literally had the sensation of not having a head uh, at the call center, like the whole field of vision around me, the field of activity around me kind of became who I was. But that was just part of a day-to-day -day grind where without that kind of dramatic experience, I would have still kind of felt basically the same way. I remember going to Safeway to rent a movie through a red box after 
a, wor- a week at working at Comcast and not being able to really find anything except the Pixar movie, which I felt I was legally obligated to watch, although it was a good movie, you know, but I, it was, I just felt like I was becoming this stereotype that didn't have, uh, I didn't have a, a center anymore that I was just treadmill of earn money and then waste your time. <laughs> is that, is that what happens when you sit in front of a computer screen all day in a cube in that artificial environment? Do you think that happens to everybody? I don't know. I think it happens to everybody on varying levels. I think that it was happening to me maybe a little more because I was already kind of critical of that environment when I stepped in the door. So I was self-aware of what it could do to my, you know, I was ready to be alienated. I became very alienated, not just from my Comcast job, but from the whole situation, feeling like basically I was I was just slowly stumbling towards the grave without it, without any kind of meaning. Um, even though I had a great family life and everything else, but it still was very depressing kind of time. And it didn't didn't help to have the critique if I couldn't do anything with it. Yeah, I work in in cube world. It's it's something that's it takes getting used to if you if you're not <laughs> used to it. I don't really know if if I stumble along in in like a cloud of death in my head or anything like that. I, I think that. It's definitely not a natural state for humans to be stacked like we are in cubes. I wanted to concentrate more on your catalyst moment that kind of moved you out of that state and into the next kind of phase of your life. Can you talk a little bit more about that? The positive side of that, that negativity, is that it doesn't support you anymore. The positive side of alienation is that when you're truly alienated, the forces in your life that are maybe oppressing you or exploiting you or or supporting you, they all kind of evaporate. So in that moment, I wasn't feeling like the call center was outside of myself. I was creating it at the same time, right? So I was responsible for my alienation in a sense. There was no disconnection between myself and the environment I was in. In Capitalist Zen, in that essay, what I'm what I talk about is how our desire to connect to the world and kind of be at one with everything can be a trap. So what I would say is that it wasn't the moment where I lost my head, but the moment where I regained it and could look back on that moment as a disruption or a break from everyday life. That was a turning point. It wasn't the mystical experience but the interpretation of the mystical experience that was important because it was only by saying, okay, yeah, that whole experience that's defining me is something that I actually participate in and that isn't real in and of itself that, that, gives, that gave me the power at least to write this book or to be critical of it. And that's what we should aim at is, that, is not integration into the social world, but of a taking of responsibility for it. Right. And, and that moment changed your perceptions of your career and, and where it was headed. And do you think that your notions of what you did for money were set out for you in advance by your parents or society? And then how did you start to shift that expectation? See, the thing about working at Comcast was in all of my jobs is that they've always been day jobs, right? So I'm, I'm a writer and then I have these day jobs. Um, and there was the, I had expectations put on me by my parents and by the neighborhood I was born into, you know, the community I was born into. But being an artist or a writer was a way to re- both rebel against that, and if you if successful, to uh, actually exceed expectations. Right? If you come from a professional background, if your father's a lawyer or something, and you become a famous famous novelist, well, you're not following in his footsteps, but you're actually going one step up 
So, so society's yeah. society's expectations is that what you're saying? Your parents? Yeah, you can you your society's and your parents' expectations. You can meet or beat them as an artist, but without having to actually um, adopt those those standards. When I am self reflective about it, that's one of the psychological reasons why I would right. I would pursue that is to <laughs> say, yeah, not only am I not going to accept your standards, I'm going to exceed your expectations both. <laughs> that's an interesting point as a father i'm sure you've thought about this extensively and how you set those role models how you set those expectations for your children um, right. could you speak a little bit to how you've changed those expectations maybe as, as you've gone along the other thing i want to point out is that it's not just my parents that were setting expectations on me it was that the whole community the, the place i was born into you know so my kids are not being born into uh quite the same level of privilege that that I was. I mean, they, you know, they're aware that money is an issue, you know, and, and that they're, they're aware when we're struggling and that kind of thing. Um, at the same time, they're certainly not going hungry. I think the expectation there is that I've tried to put on them is to be creative and intellectually curious. And one of the things that I've come up against recently is that my older son, my oldest son, is going to be 15 in September. And I'm realizing that he's only a few years away from really having to figure out what he's going to do to stand on his own two feet. And he's been homeschooled. He's very bright. He's um, a great autodidact himself. But I'm feeling pressure now from my social upbringing to kind of take him by the hand and say, okay, you need to figure out what you're going to do to fit into the system as it is and find a path for yourself and a career for yourself and not make the same mistakes I did, right? <laughs> so it's tricky. The, the big trick for me, the big problem that I face when I really stop and think about my life, even now, is trying to find a way to walk between self-preservation inside this system and working towards some sort of radical break, because I think we need a radical break. But it feels irresponsible not to work towards self-preservation at the same time. And find it's, I don't know if it's about balance or what it is do you plan for that break like in the back of your head you always keep that in your mind like i know that this is what my goal is i i, I see this coming down the line do you keep that in your mind as you go through your day to day yeah but i still th i think i need to make, take another step forward with it frankly like i think i need to get out and do something creative in the street but i think it needs to be materially realized a bit more than it is rather than just on the page um not that the page isn't valuable or not that i won't keep writing but I want to do something that will expand my horizons a little bit more and let me see what's possible a little bit more um, without falling back into this kind of, oh, yeah, that was fun. That's good for books or whatever. Maybe you can make some money off of it. But, of course, things will never change. Because I think that's what we live with most of the time is this feeling that we've reached the end of history. There's not going to be uh, a big change, which is crazy because every week there's a big change. Every week there are riots in Europe or there are, you know, nuclear power plants that, that melt down or, you know, there's another part of the ocean that dies. I mean, clearly something has got to has to give. But at the same time, on a personal day-to-day -day level, it just doesn't feel that way. And I think this is the same thing that everyone is struggling with. You know, it's the, how much time do I invest in learning about the world and pursuing my passion? But then there's this crushing burden of, you know, either debts you've accumulated or just the need to pay the bills. And mm -hmm. then at the same time, you have maybe a bit of cynicism that starts to seep in as you see how much things are changing around the world dramatically in, in incredibly dramatic ways. But yet 
the system still seems to be functioning. The system still seems to be churning along in this perverse rule set that it uses. And so how to break free from that is is kind of a challenge that we all face. And how do you avoid cynicism in the face of so much catastrophe or so much disruption? I think the way I avoid cynicism is to, to remind myself of that alienating moment where you realize that the social system that you are living in isn't actually very substantial, that it is, in fact a fiction itself. If you keep that in mind, then that cynical distance from it that we take from the crisis of it, you can start to see it as something that's actually reinforcing this idea that there's something real about our current social system when there really isn't. And so you don't have to be optimistic or cynical to really take a step back from wanting to hold on to something real and recognize that there's sort of a contradiction at the center of all of this. It's a little unsettling. (laughs) So I often will trade cynicism for being uh, confused. And you wrote in the book about contradiction being a universal principle in in the modern world. What are some of those examples of contradiction that you see? Well, the big contradiction that, you know, it's easy to point to, uh, especially if you've worked in a call center or, or, you know, currently working is between, you know, the, the way we experience our private lives as even if we're not wealthy, as opulent and freeing and enjoyable. And then the way we experience our productive lives, our work lives as being regimented, disciplined, confining. There's this contradiction between production and consumption. And even if you're poor, you can the promise of this enjoyment is still there in the realm of, of the marketplace, you know. It even is driving a lot of some really good actions. It's this resentment of, of other people's enjoyment of the great wonders in the marketplace. And this is one contradiction which I want to resolve somehow. I, I and maybe turn around because I I feel like liberation would be finding a way to to take hold of the realm of production to say I'm going to find my enjoyment in making things and in in producing my life rather than in consuming what's made uh, in this alienated process. I do say that uh, we should not get it in our minds that the only chance we have to do work is if we have, if we're working for an employer and have a job. Yes, we are always and are bound to be, this is part of the education of life, in certain situations of, of a degree of compulsion. Life has not been arranged so that we can always pick and choose the ideal thing. So we are most likely for certain parts of our lives in situations where we have to do a job that uh, isn't precisely what we want. It's an excellent learning situation to utilize this as well as one can for one's own real understanding and development. There's a lot to be learned from the difficulties, more from the difficulties than from the ease of life. If this is really a bad situation, and one really feels this is a waste of time, one's task is to make it still a fruitful situation, and then perhaps prepare very quietly some alternative. Well, of course, the first thing one would have to do is to gain a little bit of free time. One goes out to do that, one finds one has bags and bags of time to do at least two jobs. And uh, the easiest way to gain a lot of time is to abolish the television. And then one finds there is plenty of time. I mean, work it out. There are 168 hours in the week and uh, and, and only 40 hours of the 40-hour week, you know. So what do you do with the other 128 hours? That's the question. That's plenty of time. So you can always write the real thing on the back of the job you have to do. 
that we know exactly that this is not the right job, but we don't indulge in the luxury of suffering from that. You say, no, therefore, I have now to, to utilize this. Because the living, if the job is your living, that's not to be sneezed at. It's not easy being green. What is really difficult for us to accept is that we are reduced to the purely passive role of an impotent observer who can only sit back and watch what his fate will be. To avoid such a situation, we are prone to engage in frantic, obsessive activities recycling paper, buying organic food or whatever, just so that we can be sure that we are doing something, making our contribution, like a soccer or baseball fan who support his, supports his team in front of a TV screen at home, shouting and jumping up from his seat in the superstitious belief that this will somehow influence the outcome. I know very well that I cannot really influence the process which may lead to my ruin, like earthquake or whatever. But it is nonetheless too traumatic for me to accept this, so I cannot resist the urge to do something even if I know it is ultimately meaningless. Do we not buy organic food for much the same reason? Who really believes that those semi-putrefying and overpriced organic apples are really healthier? The point is that by buying them, we are not just buying and consuming a product. We are simultaneously doing something meaningful, demonstrating our capacity for care and global awareness, the Starbucks logic. You know what you encounter when you go to a Starbucks coffee shop. Basically, the message is true. Our coffee is a little bit more expensive, but... One cent from every coffee goes for Guatemala children, five cents goes for water, for blah, blah, blah. In other words, the logic is the following one, and in a perverse way, I like it. The logic is, in the old days, we were consumerists, and then we felt bad, and if you wanted to pretend to be an ethical being, you had to do something to counteract it. But the offer here is, we make it simpler for you. We make the product. You can remain just a consumerist, because your altruistic nature, solidarity with poor, it's included into the price, you know. Green is all that you can be. It sort of makes you wonder, but I say, why wonder? Why wonder? Makes you green. I say, just kind of accept it. It's great. Uh, besides, that's all I really want to be because I'm green. And that's fine. You are listening to the Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with author and podcaster Douglas Lane. 
So taking that step from the consumer to the producer, that can be through writing, that can be through podcasting, that can be through any creation of artwork, it can be through creation of a business. A lot of people don't feel that pull. A lot of people feel like they are just made to consume. How do you teach people that it's not okay to just to consume? It's a responsibility as a human to produce things. Where does that come from? You know, I don't know if it's really the case that everyone that people feel that they just want to consume or that they feel very comfortable in the position of the consumer. Certainly on the the job at Comcast, even the most gung-ho salesperson thought that they were producing themselves as a successful salesperson, right? There's this individualistic ethic that runs in our through our culture to be self-sufficient and self-producing and not to be a passive consumer, really. What I think the trick is to figure out a way not to take self-responsibility, but to take collective responsibility. The trick is to have some faith that there are other people out there who want to be productive like you do. But I'll frequently talk to people and run up to this point where I'll be saying, like, I have a friend who's unemployed, broke his ankle and had couldn't go back to his job. He'd been in a desperate situation anyway because his job was only part-time. It wasn't enough to begin with. So he quickly became just totally broke after he broke his ankle. Luckily, he actually had health insurance because he lives in Oregon and he won the lottery and got health insurance. But if he hadn't had health insurance, which he hadn't had most of his adult life, he would have been in even worse shape. But struggling for rent, doesn't know where he's going to go next, looking for a, a job where he can sit down instead of stand up all day. And he started talking about what other people could do and how hard it was for other people and how people who are really struggling just can't reach out to one another. And in such a way that it made me realize that he was not aware that he was talking about himself, that he was talking about his perception of what would be waiting for him if he did try to reach out. And Zizek talks about the concept of the big other as a chicken. There was a man who thought he was a grain of corn. He was insane. He was a farmer and he became convinced that he was a grain of corn and that he became afraid, phobic of chickens because he was sure that they were going to eat him. So, of course, he ended up in the mental asylum and uh, the psychiatrist worked him over. And after a few months... They cured him. He no longer believed that he was a grain of corn. He knew he was a farmer. He was a man. And it was a great success for the system. You know, they, they cured this guy. And so he was leaving the middle hospital to go back to his farm. And they watched him walk through the gate. And then he immediately came right back. They, he couldn't stay out in the yard. And so well, what happened? What happened? And he said, well, I saw a chicken out there. And they said, well, but you know you're not a grain of corn. You know you're a man. He said, yes, I, I know. But, but does the chicken know? <laughs> <laughs> And that's kind of our our situation. We are concerned about what other people or what the chicken thinks, not knowing that the chicken doesn't really exist, doesn't think anything, and that we're really dealing with our own state. It gets more complicated than that even, but that's, yeah, I think that's what the way to think about how to teach other people not to be mindless consumers is to recognize that that urge to uh, teach other people not to be mindless consumers is reinforcing mindless consumption itself. Right. And how do you think that individual people can start breaking out of that transference of action to others and start taking action themselves? Do you think that the action is more of personal change in habits and behavior? And then through example, other people will kind of follow and pick up? Or do you think there's even more of an active component to that in itself? Like people need to get out and, you know, do homesteading and then blog about it or start producing podcasts on their activities or or what do you think how do people transcend that barrier from for action 
Well, I would support everything you mentioned is like something that people could do or should do or might be useful. But when you talk about how should people act or what's what what's needed, the first thing that comes to mind is what Justin you've been seeing, which is the, the riots in Greece and the assemblies in Spain and and before that in Tunisia and Egypt, these mass movements to take down the current system or to fight the current austerity measures in Europe. And I think they're all terrific. But I think one of the things that you can see in Egypt clearly now is that without another chicken, without a positive vision for how we're going to actually create a new social order, the action itself is, isn't enough. It's like we can act together, but we we have to come up with a way to think together as well. And frankly, I don't know how that's going to happen. I, I don't actually have a, a blueprint or I can write a story maybe about a new social order, but but, but I think that's what's needed. And, and I, I don't really know how to get there. I, I think it could be even more than that. I mean, I was talking to my brother today, my little brother, we were speaking and, and he says he doesn't really think about these big ideas. He doesn't really think about what's going to happen in the future. He thinks about what he's going to eat for dinner that night and he's going to think about playing FIFA on his Xbox and he has a paper that's due next month but he's not thinking about that now he's going to think about that when the paper's due how old's your brother? he's 19 years old well I mean you know cut him some slack (laughs) 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 that's true his identity is still being formed but I I think that there's a lot of people who follow that model throughout their whole lives they they concentrate on on the baseball game the football game you know they go they they get they get drunk on the weekends the hot (laughs) exactly Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who who are who are caught up in that in that image that society sells them and they can't even be bothered to think about large thoughts of what's going on in Egypt, for example, or, you know, there's people that are starving in Malaysia, there's wars in Afghanistan, that those things don't even occur to them, they don't come to their life. So that's one thing that people who do think about those things can try to do is like shock some people who they perceive not to be thinking about these things into thinking about these things, you know, if I were to say what my next step, what I want to do next will be is to do some interventions out in the world. So like I want to go to karaoke bars and get up to sing and then just do like a, an analysis of the song and in our political situation for three minutes instead, like an act, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, say, ah, like put on revolution and say, start to sing in a little haltingly and then say, you know, I would sing the song, but I just can't sing because, and then just explain like, you know, this whole rap on Zizek and Egypt and, you know, <laughs> and my own personal life. Um, <laughs> and then say, I have CDs at the door if you want to pick up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. See, yeah. So uh, that's something I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do. I say I keep saying that. That's a hard step for me to get out and, you know, get out from behind my computer and, and step onto a stage. But I'm going to I'm going to do it. I mean, we need to intervene. People who are thinking about this need to intervene. And with the confidence that people want to there's underneath there's a there's a desire for thought and to stop being just constantly caught in the cycle of what, what can I take some small pleasure in right this second. And you wrote about in the book your desire to have this scene in the grocery store where you have this back to the future type uh, act, <laughs> act, right? Yeah, yeah, if you want to describe that a little bit. Well, do you see this group called Improv Everywhere? Right. They're like a YouTube phenomena. I really yeah, yeah. Like, I like I like what they're doing a lot, but 
one thing I noticed about it is that they reenact scenes from movies and they'll just reenact the scene as it was. And my favorite philosophers, one set of them anyway, are these situationists. And they had this idea of detournement, which is just means to derail. So they would take like an advertisement and or a, cart, a comic strip and they, you know, white out the speech bubbles and write in revolutionary texts in the speech bubbles for like Barbarella or something. Or if we were to do it here, like in Garfield, would say something like, you know, it's time to overturn all institutions of power or something like that instead of, you know, where's the lasagna? And uh, <laughs> so what I want to do is take this time travel, take time travel movies and do the improv everywhere thing, but with deterred time travel scenes. So like taking back a scene from Back to the Future and rewriting it as a propaganda for the Communist Manifesto and then putting that in a grocery store between Marty and, and Doc. <laughs> or, and, and just like this kind of guerrilla theater thing, instead of just reenacting the scenes. What's great about improv everywhere, though, is that it does sort of point the way towards how our everyday lives are fictions, because these fictional moments are just popping up in what you take to be real a real scene. And I really like that. But I want to not only take that fictional moment and put it into real life, but subvert the fiction that we're that we deal with most of the time and make it a little point of propaganda. And like you were saying, so much of the challenge is we're seeing these these riots and uprisings and they need a new story to fit into. And do you think that this is the role of the writer in the immediate future to start putting these fictions together or maybe start telling a story about the future after all of this happened and here's what it, it led into? You know what? I do. I, I think that there's also this kind of tendency to say, oh, I don't know what the role of the writer is. And I to abdicate responsibility for like having an artistic, even an artistic vision of like, you know, oh, well, writing can be anything. And I don't know what the novel is. I think that the role of the novelist or the writer or anyone who's seriously creative today is to come up with a way to be inspiring towards a, a new culture that this culture has been dead for maybe a century and that, that we need to face up to that and take on some responsibility. Not that artists alone can create a new culture, but as artists, that is still our task. Though it seems, and Seth, you as well as I, we both read a lot of dystopias, and it seems like there's kind of a, a swing between people who write these glaring sci-fi utopias where it's just like we fly into space and colonize the stars and our consciousness is transfer, uh, transferred into silicon or something like that. And then the, the dystopias where you know, maybe the world is ruled by these mega corporations and is all wiped out by a disease that they create or, um, you know, people are like scrabbling around in the rubble to piece together their lives as best they can. And I don't see a lot of realistic visions of the future that don't swing one way or the other that are either just completely sci-fi utopias or really bleak disasters, right? Which one do you like more? Do you like converting ah. to silicone or do you like being ruled by fascists? <laughs> well, I, my, my first answer would be, I think that's the same story told from two different perspectives, depending on which spin doctor you're turning to, you know? Ah, yeah. 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 So um, I don't like either of those, but I, you know, having said that, yes, I think the artist should take responsibility and create a new culture. I don't think it's coming up with something like a blueprint or or a, a set utopian vision is going to be the the main thing that we do. Maybe it's it's going to be a little bit more complicated than that. It's not like oh, we'll we'll just all live in Heinlein's world or we'll all live in J.K. Rowling's world. I think that's where we're living now. Or no, actually, we're living in who who wrote Twilight? 
we're living in twilight <laughs> oh no Vampires. of riots uh twilight was filming here in vancouver last summer and it was crazy because they had to like barricade the actors from the the screaming teenage girls so <laughs> but the, the good news is they're moving it to oregon this this time around when they're filming. oh so, oh god my daughter and her friends are all into twilight uh, so. yeah i was just gonna ask you if your if your kids are into that yeah, those books they are stephanie meyer is the is the novelist by the way right yeah yeah we maybe we are living in Stephanie Meyer's world and we don't we don't realize it. I think we are. I think we are. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I wouldn't say that a dystopian future. See, what I want to write is a, a book. Our books are street theater performances that open up a space as much as they define it. And so there's a contradiction again. Like I I don't want to come up with a blueprint that is like a prison for the future, but at the same time I want to come up with something that will that will support us as we try to create our own future. And so like my, like my propaganda point would be like to quote Shakespeare is like all the world's a stage. So go act. Carmen Hermosillo had been one of the earliest believers in the new communities of cyberspace. Her online name was Humdog and she lived on the West coast, but then she lost faith and she posted an attack which caused a sensation online. It is fashionable to suggest, she wrote, that cyberspace is some island of the blessed, where people are free to indulge and express their individuality. This is not true. I have seen many people spill out their emotions, their guts online. And I did so myself, until I began to see that I had commodified myself. Commodification means that you turn something into a product which has a money value. In the 19th century, commodities were made in factories by workers who were mostly exploited. But I created my interior thoughts as commodities for the corporations that owned the board that I was posting to, like CompuServe or AOL. And that commodity was then sold on to other consumer entities as entertainment. Cyberspace, she wrote, is a black hole. It absorbs energy and personality and then represents it as an emotional spectacle. It is done by businesses that commodify human interaction and emotion. When I was in grade school in Colorado, I would frequently long for snow. And while I enjoyed playing in it, sledding, skiing, starting snowball fights, laying down in it to make snow angels, the real attraction was how snow promised to stop the world. I wasn't alone in my desire. Everyone, all of my classmates felt the same. When the weatherman would point to blue triangles on the weather map, point to curved blue lines with spikes that indicated cold fronts, or point to cartoon snowflakes, we would all stay up late and watch the sky from our warm bedrooms. Snow meant we would escape the humdrum routine of school life, that homework would remain unfinished. Freedom was frozen and fell from the sky, and it might just fall down on us if we kept a light on in the window. After Lehman Brothers collapsed, I felt the same way about economic collapse as I had felt about snow in grade school. What if I turned up at work and found the doors closed, maybe padlocked? My tedious life as a cubicle worker would be disrupted. You know, a friend from China recently told me something pretty terrifying. The large majority of Chinese 
geologists know, but it's an information which the Chinese authorities try to keep secret, that the big earthquake which hit central China about, I think it was two or three years ago, that it was the first man-made earthquake. Why? Because the idea is that these gigantic new artificial lakes, which were made by the big dams, are precisely above the fault lines beneath the crust of the earth, which determine and trigger the earthquakes. Isn't this something pretty terrifying? Not our impotence, but our almost, our of humanity, omnipotence, in the sense that we can even cause earthquakes, but we don't know the scope of our omnipotence. Which is why some ecologists have a beautiful idea, which is, I think, crucial if we are to confront properly the ongoing ecological crisis, that today humanity is no longer just one among the living species, but it literally is becoming a geological factor. We should accept that nature doesn't exist, in the sense that the image of nature that we spontaneously accept, nature as a balanced, harmonized circulation which is then destroyed through excessive human agency. That nature doesn't exist. Nature is in itself a series of mega catastrophes. Nature is crazy. Things go wrong all the time in nature. Just think about oil, our main energy source. Can we even imagine what kind of a gigantic ecological catastrophe? had to have happened millions of years ago so that we have oil. This is nature. The first thing I claim is that we should accept our full alienation from nature. The problem is not science and technology. They may be part of the problem in the sense that they are causing problems. But at the same time, they are the only solution. The solution is not to feel more organic with Mother Earth, to go to the forest and so on. We are already within technology. We should remain open and just patiently work. Work how? Also with much stronger social discipline. I'm not talking about state terror, but social discipline. Maybe one of the consequences of ecological crisis will be that this American way of life vision of free spending, uh, this individualist liberty, consumation and so on and so on, we will have to get out of this and invent a new mode of living together. <laughs> Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. What the fellow said, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. One of the more realistic novels based in the future is probably the Jim Howard Kunstler World Made by Hand novels. But even mm -hmm. those kind of resign themselves towards uh, a certain vision of the future, which may or may not play out. You know, it's kind of like this, one of our previous guests, Kathy McMahon, she was like this pot and flowers kind of vision of the future, right? Where mm -hmm. everyone, you know, where you work manually much more often and there's less oil available, but you eat this amazing food all the time because you grow it in your backyard. And that's, you know, very realistically a possibility, but everyone seems more or less, uh, you know, like they've made it through the transition and they're relatively happy. And, mm -hmm. 
you know, it may not play out that way. Like there could absolutely be long periods of revolution or social unrest. And, you know, it's just trying to imagine that future and, and put it in a way that is, is realistic, but also uh, provide something that all the people who are going through this revolution can aspire to is a significant challenge, I think. Yeah. Well, did you see this new Adam Curtis movie um, about, uh, oh, the loving machines that will hold us in their grace or something like that? No. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't I know I got the title wrong. I'm terrible with that. But it's just all about the idea of ecology and nature and what its political impact has been over the last 30, 40 years. And he starts out by pointing out that our whole idea of ecological systems and nature is based on cybernetics in that the original ecologists created computer models where they simplified the inputs from natural from the natural world in order to create homeostatic balanced ecological niches and in fact if you actually go out into the world of nature and collect all the data and try to run it through your machines there is no balance it's all it is is this constant flux where we you can't tell where it's headed there's no there's no ultimate static support in nature and so that politically that was significant because what the ecologists the you know the randian ecologists the people from Ayn rand and the rand institute and all of that what they did was they took the idea of stability in nature and said our goal is to create a stable society based on these natural principles that meant that the institutions that we have now need to be stabilized and aligned with nature and once you do that then they can't be questioned right because nature is beyond us. We can't change nature. But realizing that ecology itself, that nature itself doesn't have any stability, that it is this radical flux, would be a point where I just maybe break away from Kunzler and, and uh, the permaculture crowd and saying, you know, we can't turn to any natural order to guide us. We can turn to a natural order to guide us when we are farming or when we are trying to figure out what's going on with, with the forest. To some degree, we can use these systems, and they may work on a technical level some of the time. But when it comes so, to how to form a society, when it comes to what, what kind of future world order do we want to see or do we want to strive for, that's something we're going to have to work out on our own without any support, really, from even the natural world. So you're saying the human mind doesn't bridge those two those two gaps those that oh. balance and the and the and the disharmony of nature would you would you could you argue that being a human and having consciousness kind of bridges those two and and kind of makes it the order well we can we following can, our own minds is yeah, a way to plan that yeah we can create order that's what we do but that order is not backed up by God or nature or machine elves even although that would be my I would prefer that to any of the others in terms of machine else. Um, but there's actually not backed up by any of these things. And that we then, and therefore, we have the capacity to change our mind, to change our social order, because it is an ideology. It is coming out of our own symbolic. You know, it's not so simple as we're just thinking the world into existence. There is a physical world. There is the material world out there that we are blocked by in a way. But our response to that and how we deal with one another is something that we are strangely enough both making and are and that's making us at the same time. And grabbing hold of that process and redirecting it is, is the task. 
It's also interesting to note that consciousness and humanity as a species or as an experiment in thought in matter is very, very young. Mm-hmm. In the cosmic sense of the word, humans and, and consciousness in matter is something that has never really happened before, at least that we don't we know about, we've seen or, or experienced. Right. So to to make forecasts about the the future of our species it, with consciousness is something that's very difficult to do. Especially when you consider that any forecast you make is in itself usually really a, a call for that future, an attempt to create that, that future. So every Oh, it's absolutely that, creating that future. And, right. and as much as you create your reality just by saying it, by, by speaking the words, it creates the reality. Right. Not that you are like a magician creating the reality just with the words, but you're basically compelling your fellow human beings to work with you to make your vision into a reality. And so with that in mind, is it more of a financial or, or energy crisis that we're facing, or is it a political crisis that, that the world is facing right now? Yes. Um, that's not a good answer, right? Yes, it's all this. <laughs> you, can't, yeah, you can't just answer with three letters. That's yes. <laughs> I think that we have a crisis in meaning and, and ideology right now. But alongside that, there is a real ecological crisis and there is a real political and economic crisis. So the question when it comes to the ecological crisis is how are we going to respond to it? I mean, that's the only thing that we can really debate or work on. We can't actually determine at this point, we can't determine whether or not the Arctic melts. You know, we can only determine how are we going to respond to whatever happens there? And that means how are we going to respond to whatever knowledge we have, say, about carbon emissions and how that influences that? So I would say the primary struggle right now is a political struggle that is best thought of as a political struggle. Because if there is an economic or ecological collapse without a political struggle, then the predictable results will, will be very bad for the majority of human beings. But that won't necessarily change the fundamentals of the system. Like, I believe capitalism can weather ecological disaster. Unless we do something, I think that this system will just chug right along. Because it is a system of crisis and collapse. That's what capitalism is. And so I think it could continue without it. We, we, we need to intervene. And everyone always goes back to the quote, you can imagine the end of the world more than you can imagine the end of capitalism, right? Right. Uh, yeah. And so a key theme of your book is definitely urban foraging. And I think that's really interesting because I've been seeing over the last few weeks a dramatic uptick in all the stories that are coming out about copper thieves and people stealing pieces of railroad tracks and, you know, trains wrecking. I saw it the other day and I think it was Ohio, like a house blew up because thieves went in and scavenged out pipes and the natural gas had leaked into the house and it, and it blew up when someone actually moved into the house and started using it. And so um, do you see a connection between the urban foraging in the sense of looking for food and maybe the urban foraging in the sense of like a scavenging economy starting to develop as the previously mainstream economy starts to dissolve? Well, I think often enough when you say urban foraging outside of Portland or outside of the Pacific Northwest, the image of the dumpster diver, anarchist thief kind of pops into people's minds, you know. And so here it's a yuppie practice. But I do think that that scavenging, the, the, the mentality of the scavenger is definitely a part of urban foraging, really. What we're scavenging when we walk around picking blackberries is what's left of nature, I guess. But one of the things that inspired this writing this book was an anarchist essay that I'd read, oh, probably 15 years earlier, about 
abundant cities. And the book that you read is a finished book, but I'm thinking if I can find a publisher for it, I may add another section or two to it. And if, if I were to do that, one section I'd want to add is about abundant cities and uh, setting those apart from or against urban foraging. So the vision of an abundant city is one in which you create a public space where there's fruit trees and edible plants available to everyone. So everyone can scavenge that. It's a free and open space, but one that is really clearly socially produced for that purpose. So to make at least part of your diet, something totally outside of the economic realm or something that's part of the commons. So yeah, scavenging or looting, let's just talk about looting. I mean, all of that is a way to try to take back or break through the values of or the property values, you know, the, the, the system of power as it is now. So like you go out and say, yeah, I'm not going to play by the rules anymore. I'm just going to you tell me that I should really want these TVs. So I'm just going to go take them then. There is something liberating in that moment. But without a positive vision as to move beyond looting and sca- or scavenging this dying culture, which, by the way, I don't believe will really die on its own without a vision for creating a new social space. I, I, I think it's a dead end. So it's like it's a first step to start scavenging, we have to create new places, new orders out of the, what you pick up. I was just going to ask if scavenging kind of goes along with the creating of media we were talking about earlier. Does that play along with it or does it detract from it? I think it depends. I think that if you are aware that you're scavenging the culture and with the aim of building something new out of it, I mean, that was what was kind of liberating about, well, that was a, the utopian potential or vision of like the cyberpunk movement was that you'd had these high-tech lowlifes who would go and scavenge computer parts in order to create new virtual spaces, right? So I think it can be a radical thing to scavenge the old culture the or the current order in order to deter it or derail it or change it. I mean, that's going back to the time travel ideas and picking parts out of old movies and to put them on the street again in a new form. That's kind of scavenging. I'm scavenging the Hollywood for something that might be of value for a better vision. And Hollywood scavenges pretty much everything that makes new movies. <laughs> right. But these days, yeah, all they do is remake uh, old movies and run out of steam. It's true. Yeah, everything is a sequel now. So <laughs> including, <laughs> including uh, Extra Environmentalist number three, this was the sequel to that one. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so we're scavenging ourselves. <laughs> closes out our interview with Doug Lane and we covered quite a range of topics there. Seth, what did you think? Doug Lane is always a great guest to have. I love speaking with like-minded folks who actually, you know, produce media. It's nice to speak with somebody who's producing media that is along the same lines as us. We were talking about Doug's job a lot and how being a cube worker sitting in front of a screen really felt like he wasn't fulfilling his life. Like he has this split between doing things to maintain his social position, such as earning money, and then this drive to do something creative, to push and produce something that's meaningful. I think that's something that everyone faces. And I think that's something that you have to face when you are doing something for money for someone else. 
instead of being motivated by your own goals. How do you think humanity gets to the point where we can do whatever it is that we want to do and not have to worry so much about earning money and all the basics for our survival? How does humanity jump to the point where we can just concentrate on the things that we want to do. I don't think we'll ever get to that point because I think there is so much work that has to be done. I think it's really unrealistic to think that in some ideal future we'll just all be sitting around doing creative awesome things all the time because the reason we have so much freedom to do so many things that aren't related to direct necessities is because we have this tremendous net energy pile that we live on and we've had all of this excess energy that's been given to us by the abundant and cheaply accessible oil and other energy resources that we don't have to be out farming. And we were speaking with Matt Stein last episode and he was talking about how 2% of the U.S. population is farmers now, whereas back during the Great Depression in the 1930s, it was much, much higher. It was something like 60%, I think he said. I can't remember the exact number. Yeah, it was about 60%. You think about all of those people who were involved in farming, and that's because there wasn't as much net energy available back then. Now we're headed towards a situation where net energy is rapidly declining because we're having to go and get tar sands and oil from under the sea with deep water drilling, and all of those abundant net energy sources are going away. And so either people are going to have to start doing more labor that involves manual labor, people are going to have to do more labor that results in food output rather than doing work that involves sitting in front of a computer screen and doing Excel spreadsheets, for example. Yes, or video editing. Yeah, or even video be... editing. <laughs> I think video is, is something that might stay around for a while. I mean, people like video and people like to watch movies and people like to communicate with video. That might stay around. Yeah, I definitely think it'll stay around for quite a while because it's such a useful medium and it's so important for sharing ideas. And I think there's no better way of changing consciousness than a film, like a documentary that captures an idea and using that visceral combination of image and sound, it creates in you a kind of change that is not possible through just watching you know, a television show or even an audio documentary to some extent. Film and video is really powerful, even if we True. mostly just use it to share the things that cats do. The cats do quite a lot of interesting things. Like hop in and out of boxes. They just hop in and out of so many boxes. They spend their whole day just inside of a box and then out of the box. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of the things that Doug was talking about was the idea of an abundant city. We didn't talk about it a whole lot, but could you imagine a city that a large portion of the food output was just freely available through fruit trees and public gardens that were subsidized through the public good? I think about that sometimes. You know, there's all that vegetation that grows on the sides of highways and along the medians of highways. It would be so nice if those were blueberry bushes or, you know, trees that needed low maintenance but had a lot of fruit or, you know, instead of having those road crews working 24-7 on, on patching up the highways, we should just have them growing food in the medium instead. When we were speaking with Chris Martinson, he said there's so many jobs out there that have yet to be done that people need to do. And we really are facing in the modern U.S. economy an unemployment crisis. There's so many people who are just losing their jobs and a lot of them probably are disillusioned because they've been working in jobs where they didn't feel that they were or contributing in a meaningful way to their lives or just having to work for money. And you think of all the land around you 
whether like you're saying on the highway or in front of your house that could be used to grow something that's useful for the world. It's incredible. And if people started having the social structure that gave them at least some money or some means to support themselves by working that land, it would be incredible. The amount of food and food security and abundance that could be produced through that. People say that there's all these jobs and all this opportunity to change and all this, all these ways that we can change. And even with the last presidential election, when we, we had a candidate running on the theme of change who says that electing him would bring about change and that got him elected that was his platform was bringing change to the people he didn't bring change but the the message the underlying theme was something that resonated with the with the people of this country it's something that the people are looking for it's something that the people want and you see it all over the world too people are rioting for change everywhere we see it everywhere all over the place maybe the obama administration did bring change but that change was in the form of climate change you can believe in the united states has been absolutely <laughs> The United States has been absolutely devastated by droughts and terrible weather events and now a big hurricane. Of course, hurricanes aren't necessarily climate change related, but hurricanes that still maintain some type of uh, tropical storm force winds hitting places as far north as like Maine. Like that's pretty incredible. And the reality is that the U.S. economy is pretty weak right now. And all of these major shutdowns of New York City on one of the major tourist weekends are extremely harmful to a consumer economy. And so the fragility of the economy combined with all of these extreme weather events makes everything even more difficult. I was on the phone with my mom the other day and she was saying that finding hay for her goats is getting even tougher as all of the drought that's continuing in the central part of North Carolina just gets worse and worse. They were actually hoping to get some rain from Hurricane Irene. A lot of people had different expectations for what Irene would bring. But in the central part of the state, kind of where I live, there was not much rain or really any kind of wetness dropping from the sky, except the tears on my cheek. Exactly. And nothing fits more into the idea that we were speaking with Doug about in terms of how our own lives are fictions, how our society is part of a fiction, and the dystopian writers and the other writers that create these fictions are addressing these ways of intersecting human imagination with society. Nothing fits more into that than how the whole climate change debate has taken place over the last 10, 20 years. Because people like Bill McKibben have been writing about climate change for 30 years now, almost. And They've been saying that, you know, all these extreme weather events are going to start happening and it's going to devastate economies and make things more expensive to insure. And then sure enough, it's happening. It's actually occurring. And it's really great to live in a fiction when, you know, climate change isn't occurring. But the evidence really points towards a lot of really crazy weather events. And, you know, maybe it's the fact that 2012 is right around the corner and the Mayans are going to send down aliens or something and convert all of humanity. But it tends to point towards a lot of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that's been accumulating heat on our planet. We were speaking with Doug about these fictions that writers create. How do you think that authors can create fictions that have an impact on the overall narrative of society? I think fiction can go a long way 
way in defining people's reality. Listen to a lot of talks by Terrence McKenna who talks about how language is a very, very powerful force in defining your reality. The words that you use go a long, long way in, in figuring out where you are in your life and the words that you have in your vocabulary can actually change your mindset because if you can understand various concepts of what these words spell out or what the stories talk about, you can change your whole reality. You can change your mindscape when you're learning different languages, when you read different kinds of fiction or when you travel. All these things kind of help to define your narrative, kind of help define the mindscape, the, the building blocks that exist within your world. So the more that you take in, the more fiction you read, the more new words you understand, the more different mindsets you can incorporate into your mindset, that goes even further in allowing you to accept new ideas and accept new narratives of the world into your viewpoint. And it becomes okay. It becomes less scary. It becomes just part of your reality that you can take ideas from diverse sources and from people who have lived long ago and learned lessons that you can incorporate into your life now and, and learn from history in a way that will keep you from repeating the mistakes that they have made in the past. I think that's why fiction is so important. It actually takes you inside the mind of another person, whether that's through the character you're reading about, but that character is a subset of the character that is the author uh, himself or herself. And those authors have lived very interesting lives. They've developed their minds. They've created these interesting ideas. And then it's reflected through that character into the page and woven into the story. George R.R. R. Martin once said, A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads only lives one. And I think that goes a long way in, into explaining this concept of being able to live the lives of all those people that, that you're reading about, even if you're not actually with them or you're not talking to them. They become your friends and they become part of your life because you're living the experience that, as the author tells it to you. And there's not a huge amount of difference between you know actually hearing about somebody's life and talking with them or living the life. I, think, I feel like you can gain a whole lot of introspection just by hearing about people's experiences. And that's what the Extra Environmentalist podcast is all about, hearing about all of these experiences, listening to what people can tell us about their lives. And we want to hear more. And if you want to send us a voicemail telling us about a life experience you had, either while listening to Extra Environmentalist or in general, you can give us a call at our voicemail number. How can they do that, Seth? People can reach the Extra Environmentalist via voice via the number 919-701-9872. And those last four letters spell out XTRA. So if you want to use the touchstone telephone, you can dial 919-701-XTRA. If phone is not your preferred method of communication. We have a website, which is www.extraenvironmentalist.com. We run a Twitter feed, which is at X Environmental. And so it's no E in front of that. It's just X-E-N-V-I-R-O-N-M-E-N-T-A-L at X Environmental. And we also have a Facebook page, which we just reached 130 likes. Holy cow. Yeah, keep liking us on Facebook. That's so awesome. And a few people have gone onto our page, onto our extraenvironmentalist.com website, and have shot us some emails and even a donation. To had our first 
donation. Yeah. So thanks to Paul H. from Palo Alto, California for being our first donation to the podcast. He said that he listens regularly, usually while gardening or washing the dishes. And he can definitely tell that our show is a labor of love and that we have good topics, interesting guests and entertaining hosts. And what more could he want from a podcast? So thanks, Paul. If you like the books that we talk about and you'd like to purchase one of these books via the internet, which is a fine place to find books to buy. Uh, you can find the list of the books on our, our webpage as well. If you scroll down on the right-hand side, you can see a few of the books that we speak about on The Extra Environmentalist, and you can order them. And when you do, part of that money that you are paying to Amazon to buy the book will come to us. Yeah, and we also added a new feature to our site, which is a question submission page. So if you want to be part of the conversation with all of the wonderful authors, filmmakers, and guests that we have on our show, you can do that. You can go to our page, submit a question, we'll list upcoming interviews on the site, and you can be a part of those conversations. Or if you have just general questions that you think would make a good start of a conversation or in addition to a conversation, whether it's about money, energy, society, throw it in there and we'll toss it into one of our future interviews. We also heard from a listener, Eric K, and he sent in an email and he told us that he's been really enjoying the podcast and he really wants us to do some more impressions of Alex Jones, which Alex Jones may be making a return to the program in a near episode. Or in this episode. Maybe even in this episode. So great. thanks for the email, Eric, and it's great to have you listening. Again, we encourage everyone to leave us a voicemail, contact the ex-environmentalist, pass it around to all your friends, and you know, just do what you need to do to get the word out there. We are there for you as a resource. Check out Diet Soap, check out some of the books that we talk about, and you know, find your way to new stuff. And if you find something great, let us hear about it. And on that note... And on that note... Go eat at Wendy's. No, don't do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Wendy's. time on the extra environmentalist getting involved in growing things supporting local agriculture rather than you know globalized food commodities as well as fermenting food are, are all ways of resisting cultural homogenization and one of the things that's specific about fermenting foods in your home environment and particularly fermenting locally grown foods in your home environment is you get very particular local populations of bacteria growing in these foods and so in a very literal and tangible way when you eat foods that you have you know fermented with local foods in your home environment you are becoming your environment Big Brother, mainstream media, government cover-ups. You want answers? 
Well, so does he. He's Alex Jones. And now, live from Austin, Texas, Alex Jones. Welcome back. We're talking here from Austin, Texas Live, and I've got a very special interview for everyone today. We're interviewing the director of FEMA, and this is someone I've been wanting to speak to for a long time, FEMA director William F., and it's really great to have him on the program to talk about uh, FEMA camps and his plans to enslave the American populace. Uh, William, how are you doing today? Oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so there's been some hurricanes on the East Coast. There's been an earthquake. How are you manipulating the weather to make sure that all Americans will be enslaved in FEMA camps? Oh, yeah, it's a great question, Alex. Uh, we've been having some uh, satellites going around and doing some experiments with the weather manipulation. Uh, you see, back in uh, the late 80s and 90s, we, we experimented with using satellites to change the weather and earthquakes to try to uh, scare people and destroy their ways of life. With oil coming to an end, cheap energy kind of going away, we need to make a transition to uh, a more secure state, if you know what I mean. What kind of standard of life can the American people expect in FEMA camps? I hear that you are not exactly planning for a luxurious lifestyle. Well, you know, only the best of a third world country kind of standard. We will give people those large 50-inch flat-screen televisions with 24-7 access to the ESPN and ESPN2. So, uh... All you people out there who are very interested in watching that those uh, football games, they will not have to worry. Uh, we won't talk about the the toilet conditions or the uh, the conditions of their rooms. Uh, five by five is uh, a common space for a FEMA camp, but we will have interrogation facilities. We will have places for people to get smacked around and beat up when they are misbehaving. So not to worry. Sounds like only the best for uh, American FEMA camps. I'm sure that FEMA camps. In other countries wouldn't go to those kind of standards because America being the land of the free and so much uh, important discoveries and developments here in this country, uh, we only have the best uh, internment camps. Well, well, now, Alex, I wouldn't go that far. We get our model of our FEMA camps from India slums, where we have a current about a, a million people in, in, in camps there. When we go there, we send our agents there to study how those people live, to see how they live in, in squalor. And then we take those experiments that they do there for us. You know, we, we bring those slums to those people so they can do those things. We can have those experiments going so we can bring that back here and see how people live without running water, without electricity, without food. You're telling me live on the air that FEMA is operating camps not only in the United States of America, but is also what, what? operating camps in India, international camps. Alex, Alex. Where do, you, where do you think we get all the all of our information for, for learning how to do these things from? You think that we just make it up out of nowhere? Of course we have these studies going on. Africa, we have them. We have them in India. We have them in Afghanistan. We have them in China. Everywhere that you people are living in third world conditions where there's no food to eat, no electricity, and we're, you know, we're shooting them up with constant machine gun fire. We have to make sure that America has the right kind of atmosphere so that we can bring that back home, so that we can bring it on to the people in proper squalor. 
absolutely. And I wouldn't know anything about making stuff up out of nowhere. But tell me about how the internet is being monitored to ensure that no information that is against the mainstream narrative is uh, escaping. Now, uh, Alex, I wouldn't normally tell you this, but... The internet is monitored on a 24-7 basis. So we have, you know, the, all those uh, Google and those Yahoo companies out there, the Apple, we, we make sure that those companies are highly regulated, that they have chips that monitor everything that goes into them. So every website that you look at, every podcast that you download, every Skype call that you made, you know that Microsoft just bought Skype, don't you, Alex? You know that. So wow. everything that's going on out there is monitored by, by us. So we know when your insurrection is coming. We know when you're going to the store to buy milk for your grandmother. We know when you're buying those illegal substances off the internet to make funny home movies. We know all about that. And we see it all because we have little cameras installed in all your computers, all your cell phones, your GPS track. Even your condoms have radioactive collars on them. I had no idea that FEMA had such an unbelievable reach into the typical American lifestyle. Now, uh, we're going to have to close out here in just a minute. But before we do, I need your comments on the scam that is Steve Jobs and his ability to continually push FEMA's agenda onto the American people through Apple products over the last few decades. Tell me about that PSYOP that you guys have been running, that disformation campaign. Right, right. Well, Steve Jobs, Alex, is a very high-level, high-ranking FEMA employee. He has been a top performer for years and years. That that cancer that he has going on in his stomach is really just him getting soft on the people. He started making products that were helping people. And we don't do that. We make sure that they are hurting and looking to the government. So when he came out with that Apple iPhone and the Apple iPhone 3G, we didn't like that too much. So we started a campaign to take Steve Jobs down a notch or two, replace him with a typical corporate CEO who we have under our thumb with more regularity. You know, we had Steve for a while, but he started going off in different directions. Apple computers, they started not complying with our FEMA regulations. So we had to take him down. Alex, you know how it goes. So what, what you're saying is that Apple Computers is actually the fundamental underlying structure of the entire U.S. economy. Is, is that what it's, I'm it's hearing? No, it's no wonder, Alex, that Apple has a, surpassed Exxon as the top performing U.S. company. Is it, is it really that hard for you to believe that Apple's under the thumb of the U.S. government? Un unbelievable. I had no idea that FEMA had such a wide reach into business and into international politics and into sports and especially television broadcasting. So we're going to have to leave it there. William F., thank you so much for your time today. Good good luck in moving forward and may the American people uh, rebel against you with uh, violent weaponry and insurrection. Oh, we're, lo we're looking forward to it, Alex. We're looking forward to it with open arms. Could we just get your thoughts on uh, purchasing of gold? Well, Alex, gold can be melted down into many different forms with it. Uh, there's not much use for gold in our FEMA camps. We don't really take gold. Currency in the FEMA camps is mostly cigarettes and favors, if you know what I mean, Alex. You, you heard it here first. Uh, get into shape so that you can be heavily desirable as currency in the FEMA camps. And uh, thank you again for your time. Anytime, Alex. Good night, Irene, and good night, Irene.